You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Julia. I'm Kate. And I'm Ida. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Neil Spackman. Neil is the founder and CEO at Regenerative Resources Company, a company that works with landholders, governments, institutions, communities, and tribes to transform degraded landscapes into regenerative regenerative circular economies. His goal is to create enterprises that reconnect rural prosperity to ecological function through regenerative agricultures that sequester carbon, increase water resources, increase biodiversity, and grow soil. He's worked in Saudi Arabia to regreen the desert and is currently pursuing project development in Somaliland and Baja California, Mexico. I got to know Neil through our time together at Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he had an inspiring idea for how to address the Salton Sea crisis in California through ecological restoration. Excited to hear his perspective on what it takes to work on the ground as a practitioner of nature-based solutions, particularly with a focus on restoration and international contexts. Neil, welcome to Solving Climate Naturally. We are delighted to have you. Hey, thanks very much. So Neil, you have worked in some very interesting places. And before we dig into some of the things that you're working on now, could you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got here, where you started your career and how you initially got interested in the environment and restoration? Oh, goodness. Um, That journey probably starts with a trip that my family took to St. Lucia when I was in first grade. Um, My dad's a doctor. We went and stayed in St. Lucia for three months and he did volunteer work at the hospital um, in the main city in St. Lucia. And he was working with surgeons and helping teach them about different techniques and stuff like that. Um, And we lived in a two room shack Right. My parents had one room. All the kids slept in the living room. And then we had a kitchen. Um, And it was my first exposure to a different culture and different language. And we, you know, made friends with all the local kids. And that was my first exposure to the fact that people don't all live the same way, that people don't grow up the way that I was growing up. Um, And it made me interested in travel and in other cultures. And then um, when I lived in Guatemala, I was, I was an LDS missionary in Guatemala from 2000 to 2002. And I spent a lot of time with people who would go out into the woods and haul firewood and sell it for, you know, $5 for, you know, 20 pounds and lived in houses built with, glad bags and and corrugated tin um, and became very exposed to uh, poverty and and resource scarcity and and all sorts of things along those lines. I think that between those two was really my my interest in development, my interest in um, in poverty per se. And then sometime during my undergrad, I became very interested in sustainability both within the built environment and within uh, food systems. And that was primarily 
through a number of books, one of which was uh, the Lovins and Paul Hawkins book, Natural Capitalism. That, that book was a real game changer for me. And so when I, when I finished undergrad, I went and worked um, with a shop that was doing uh, media analysis. I, I did my undergrad in economics and, and Middle East studies in Arabic, spent some time in Egypt, um, spent some time in Jordan as part of that, and went and did media analysis where we were writing reports on current events. We would collate op-eds and news articles coming out of the Middle East, and then we would send that on to clients in the State Department and the DOD and other um, U.S. government entities. And I hated that job. <laughs> and I was, I was dying to get into something related to sustainability in food or sustainability in the built environment. And while I was there, I became friends with a neighbor who was an Egyptian woman who uh, in 2010 offered me the chance to get involved in the Albeda project. Um, and the concept at the time was um, that she was working with a group of, of Saudis to build a green village. That was how it was pitched to me. Um, and they were looking for someone that knew the culture, knew the language, and would be, you know, interested enough to go out there and spend time with the Bedou and work with them. And so for me, this was, this was my opportunity to pivot out of an industry I wasn't all that interested in and into an industry that I, that I was really passionate about breaking into. And so I was hired not for my knowledge of sustainability, but for my uh, cultural and linguistic savvy and the fact that I was willing to go out there. Um, although I, and so I had book knowledge about the sorts of things we would try to do, but very little experience, which I think in some ways ended up being to my advantage. But uh, in 2010, I, I quit my office job doing media analysis and uh, moved to the Saudi desert and started working with tribes of Bedouin on uh, land restoration and uh, restoring, not just land restoration, but we were trying to create a prototype to restore the indigenous grazing systems of the Arabian Peninsula. And that was, I mean, it was an adventure. It was for me, it was, this is how I get started doing the kind of thing that I want to do. That's great. And we would love to dig back into the Albeda project that you mentioned. But we wanted to just to get a bit more of broader context for what you do. And a lot of your work's really been focused on transforming degraded landscapes into regenerative circular economies, as you mentioned. And, yep. and specifically, you focus a lot on, on addressing the challenge of desertification. That's right. For our listeners, could you talk a bit more, like, what is desertification? What causes it? Why does it matter? Why did you decide to focus on it? Yeah. Um, well, in part, that was the opportunity that I had, right, and the challenge that I faced. Desertification can be caused naturally by things that are way outside of our control or can be driven by people. And in... 
a lot of cases, it's uh, at least in the last century or so, it's been the the uh, dominance of nation states over tribal or indigenous communities where the power of the state really kind of supplants traditional land management systems. And that's, that's a global pattern. Um, but on top of that, it's, you know, desertification is super old um, and is often caused by mismanaged grazing, by irrigation in the, in the case of the Fertile Crescent, uh, you, by deforestation is often a precursor to desertification. Um, and it's, it's primarily about management of land and water and effects that are often seen as externalities that actually affect the very foundation of the systems that we're, that we're trying to run. Um, and I can go into I can go into a lot of detail about that, but it has to do with how how the water cycles and the mineral cycles interact with ecology, um, and it also has to do with what's called stable state theory of ecology, which is um, the idea that uh, ecologies reach some kind of equilibrium that is always shifting, but it, it that equilibrium maintains a certain climate, maintains a certain amount of rainfall, and maintains the the mineral cycling of, of nutrients from plants to animals to soil and, and back again. Um, and when those cycles are disrupted through human management, then you, you get all sorts of problems. And one of those is desertification. So where is desertification happening today and and how is climate change affecting it? Yeah, it's happening all over the place. There's a really good book called When the Rivers Run Dry um, that goes into great detail all over the planet. But in, in the Middle East, desertification is happening and, and has been happening quite significantly since the 1940s. And you wouldn't think, and these are, these are desert climates, so you wouldn't think desertification is happening in a place that's already a desert. Um, but it is the case based on dozens of interviews that I've done with very old people, you know, along the Red Sea coast of the Arabian Peninsula, where they have fond memories of going to these green spaces as children, you know, 80, 70, 80 years ago. Um, and they say, when I go there now, it's just desolate. There's no more water. There's no more trees. There's no more greenery. Um, so it is happening in the Middle East. It is happening in the Americas. Um, I think the, it's likely that the depletion of the Ogallala aquifer without serious change in management is likely to lead to another dust bowl or to just slower desertification um, in the, and I'm thinking about the panhandle of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. It's happening in California quite a bit through, through deforestation um, and through plowing, especially in the central Valley. Um, it's, it's a global phenomenon. There's a lot of 
desertification in Africa, also having to do with um, agriculture or deforestation? My understanding too is that climate change is sort of exacerbating desertification, right? It's, it's creating this feedback loop. And your solution though is to create regenerative circular economies. So yeah. can you explain what you mean by regenerative circular economies and paint us a picture of what this looks like? What, what's a vision of a future with regenerative circular economies instead of desertification? Sure. Um, let's deal with regenerative first because it's a bit of a buzzword and there is some co-option happening. Um, regenerative ag is almost reactionary to the dominant models of how we grow our food, fuel, and fiber. And so whereas monocrop systems are destroying soil um, completely dependent on fossil fuel inputs and biocides and uh, destroy soil, destroy biodiversity, eradicate ecologies, create dead zones in our oceans, um, and our dri main drivers of desertification and deforestation. Regenerative ag in some ways is the opposite of that. It's a way to produce food, fuel, and fiber in such a way that soil is increasing. It comes down to what is the right relationship to have with nature and land uh, and water and ecology, but it's, it's a methodology of production that actually increases those fundamental resources, right? So it's, it, it may seem very odd to make this claim, but the, the agriculture we developed in, the, in El Beda increases freshwater resources in the desert. And it's, it's really quite um, counterintuitive to suggest that we can have more greenery in a place and at the same time have more water. Because the intuitive thing is to suggest that, well, if it's more green, you're using up more water. And, uh, and that's not the case with many regenerative systems. The other thing I would say about regenerative is it seeks to manage ecologies as such. So we, in a regenerative system, you don't plow up a prairie and turn it into a corn or a soybean field. You manage it as a prairie. You don't drain a wetland, you manage the wetland as such and maintain the ecological function of that wetland in such a way that you're producing things, but you're not compromising the ecological function of that place. So that's the regenerative piece. The circular piece is much more about eliminating waste and redirecting what traditionally has been waste products into other product streams. Um, and this is, this is much broader than, than the regenerative concept because you can do circular stuff in urban areas. You can do circular stuff in rural areas. Um, it, it's, it's about creating efficiencies and, and eliminating waste by redirecting it into something that's productive, right? So one, one example of this could be fertilizer runoff. From, from farm fields, which currently cause massive dead zones in uh, the Mississippi Delta and, and in other deltas around the planet. But, you know, when a farmer applies fertilizers to his field, it's a fertilizer. 
but once it runs off, it becomes pollution, right? So one man's fertilizer or one person's fertilizer is another person's pollution. Um, and so if there were a way to redirect that into a productive system, whether through f- floating wetlands or, or recreating wetlands to absorb that nutrient, um, you kind of get a, a twofer by redirecting waste because you're eliminating one bad thing, but you're also creating a good thing out of it. So that's, that's the circular piece in, in, in how I uh, think about it. So what does this look like in real life? What's a, a decent example? On the regenerative side, one of the systems that we're deploying at Regenerative Resources is a seawater agroforestry where we can take a coastal landscape that's extremely saline and doesn't support life because the soil is so salty and it's in the in-between space of the ocean and your first coastal ecology really. On these landscapes we can transform them into series of mangrove agroforestries both mangrove woodland, mangrove wetland, and mangrove polycultures, where we're growing halophytic crops, seawater crops, alley cropped with mangroves. And what the first iteration where, where my team did this was in Eritrea. And they created freshwater lenses by intercepting floods coming out of the watershed. So they were increasing freshwater resources. They started with 23 species of bird living on site and within four years had over 250 species of birds living on site. So they had a massive increase just in bird biodiversity, right? That doesn't take into account all the crustaceans, all the, uh, all the other animals and the soil ecology that would have developed with that system. Um, And at the same time, they had over 800 employees, Right. They created 800 jobs. They were exporting a ton of shrimp to the EU every week. So it was a, it was a commercially viable system that had created this new economy out of what was a very desolate landscape that also had serious environmental benefits with respect to water, with respect to biodiversity. And over time, it would have become a net carbon sequestering system even with all the embodied energy of the processing plants and the operations. So that's, that's one example of a system that we're working on and, and iterating. Neil, that's fascinating. Hearing you talk about creating these systems to generate food, you know, we're heading towards a planet of 9, 10 billion people. What do you think about feeding the planet through regenerative circular economies? Is that possible? Are there trade-offs that we have to think about in terms of the amount of land or the you know efficiency to feed everyone? How do we feed 9 to 10 billion people? Can we do that through regenerative circular economies? That's a great question. I've got strong opinions on the answer. But I would first like to assert that we're not going to be able to feed billions of people with a food system that destroys what we need to grow food, Right. If right now we have a system that destroys soil and consumes water resources, right? Depletes water resources is better said. Um, and a system that does that compromises our future ability to grow food. 
So that's what I want to start with, because it is a common assertion that we can't feed the world with regenerative. I think that assertion tends to show a lack of creativity. But the other piece is, well, we certainly can't feed the world with the system we've got because we're destroying our future capacity to produce food, right? We're not going to grow food with a system that destroys soil, right? And that creates massive environmental problems. And so the efficiency question is really interesting because what tends to be left out of the conversation is Jeevan's paradox. Jeevan's paradox shows up in a lot of different industries. Economists like to talk about it a lot. But it's the fact that if the only thing you're changing is efficiency, if you get more efficient in the production of a particular good, you actually end up consuming more of that good in, in aggregate. And the example that I like to bring up with this to, to demonstrate is the cotton gin, right? The cotton gin made labor for spinning cotton something like 5,000% more efficient at least in the American South, what they needed 50 slaves to produce, they could now produce with two slaves. And at first glance, you would expect then that the cotton gin would reduce demand for slavery because all of a sudden you need 4% of the slaves you needed before to produce the same amount of goods. That's not what happened. What happened was cotton became so much more profitable that more land was put into cotton and demand for slavery in the American South skyrocketed, even though it was so much more efficient. And so that's an example of Jeevan's paradox at play. If we get more efficient at using land to produce food, and if efficiency is the only thing that changes, we're not going to use less land to produce food. Producing food will become more profitable and more land will be put into these systems. And so I don't buy the argument that if we become 50% more efficient, then we can put 50% more land into conservation. So there is a drastic need to increase efficiency, but if that's the only thing that changes, it doesn't actually solve the problem. The other thing that needs to change is what we refer to as externalities need to be integrated into the fundamental accounting of how we produce things. Because let's ignore Jeevan's paradox as a thought experiment and say, okay, we're going to make the current systems we've got more efficient, right? We're going to double the number of bushels or yield per acre with every major crop we've got. But we're going to keep producing it the way we're producing it. Right? And so we can, we'll put 80% of the soy farmers out of business because we don't need them anymore. And we'll put all that land into conservation. If the way we're growing food continues to deplete water and destroy soil and destroy ecologies, then inevitably whatever lands we're on will be depleted and then we're going to have to move on to wherever else we can do it. And that's been the pattern 
of agriculture since the advent of agriculture, you know, 8,000 years ago or however many thousands of years ago it was. You know, it was the Babylonians who figured out how to do irrigation off of the Euphrates and the Tigris. And they started out growing wheat. And, and because the floodplain is lower than the actual river, they could just flood irrigate, right? And after decades, I don't think it was centuries. If I remember right, it was decades. The land got so salty that they couldn't grow wheat anymore, right? Because of how irrigation affects soil salinity. So they had to start growing barley. And then I think they grew barley for a couple hundred years. And then all of a sudden they couldn't grow barley anymore because it got progressively saltier as an effect of flood irrigation. And then eventually they couldn't grow enough food for their empire anymore. And there was a collapse. And so the thing that allowed the Babylonian empire to get established, which was flood irrigation and grain agriculture, also was the seed of the destruction of the same empire because eventually they destroyed the soil, right? And since then, much of that area has been salinized and has not been able to produce food ever since. This is not a function of anything developed in the last century. It's not a function of the Green Revolution. It's a function of agriculture as it has been practiced for thousands of years. And that's not to suggest that things haven't changed. It's to suggest that when we dominate landscapes, and insist that they function in the way we want them to, we actually see the own destruction of those systems. Because the way we manage those landscapes fundamentally disrupts mineral and water cycles. I, I want to switch to your gears just a bit. You mentioned at the beginning in, in your introduction the Albeda project, which is absolutely fascinating. And I think maybe a good way to take it from the high-level discussion of desertification and regenerative ag and look at a project on the ground level. The video from this project, which we'll link in the show notes, is absolutely impressive. The way that the barren desert was transformed, and there's, there's a lot to talk about here, but maybe to start, could you just share what the landscape was like when you started, what the challenge was, how you approached it, and what were some of the surprises perhaps along the way? Elbela is about 50 kilometers south of Mecca. It's an area run by a magistrate who's under Mecca governorate. It's about 35 kilometers by 50 kilometers. And there's two main tribes living there and then two smaller tribes that interact with the two main ones. The Jahdalis and the Abdalis are the two bigger tribes and the ones in the south and the others in the north of the region. And then you also have Adwanis and Nedwis who are also a part of these communities. And there's a few more than a dozen different population centers of settled nomads within Elbela, some of whom were still nomadic as recently as 2005, but most of whom were settled by government incentives in the 90s. Climatic-wise, it's an extremely challenging place. We're averaging 60 millimeters of rain a year, oftentimes going two or three years without any rain at all. And we're in the foothills of the mountain range that runs from Yemen all the way up to Lebanon. So because we're in a desert and because we have mountains, the hydrology is characterized by flash floods, right? All deserts have flash floods. But in mountainous deserts, they tend to be more dramatic and more dangerous. The people are 100% Muslim. 
tend to be quite conservative. And I was the first American that most of them had ever spoken with, the first non-Muslim that they had ever met. We, pretty early on, we selected a 100-acre site to prototype the systems that we wanted to develop. And the idea was that we would develop a prototype on the small scale and then take the lessons learned from that and go much bigger to create an economy that could provide for the people living there. And the desertification in El Beda is a function of a couple different things. The first was the a policy in the 1950s that essentially eliminated all traditional tribal boundaries as part of building the nation state, right? Or rather the monarchy of Saudi Arabia. So all the land ostensibly belonged to the monarchy and the traditional tribal boundaries were essentially eliminated. Not eliminated because people still had their informal boundaries and everybody knows what's whose, right? The, the local knowledge hasn't gone, but the legal power behind that wasn't able to be enforced anymore. And along with that, the traditional land management system was pretty much collapsed. And the, the name of that system is HIMA, which means a reserve or a protected space. And before the 1950s, there were over 10,000 HIMA areas in Saudi Arabia. And today, I think it's less than 150 or less than 200. And, and these were areas that were managed very strictly according to rules established by the people who lived on these lands. But essentially what it came down to was different areas of land were allocated for different uses and there was super strict management. So you would have an area of the tribe's land that was just for honey production. And you'd have another area where they'd say this area is reserved for the horses and camels of the tribal warriors. And then you'd have another area that was for the tribal leaders, uh, camels and goats. And then you'd have areas for, for different families within the tribe. And if you took your grazing animals across a boundary that was set by the Himma, the punishment was quite severe. You would lose 10% of your flock and you'd be flogged. At least in the, in, in the records that I've been able to find that are quite recent, I don't know that that's how it was a long time ago. But this system called Himma permeated the entire Arabian Peninsula and had maintained the fertility of the landscapes for over 1,500 years, as far as we can tell. It's a system that predates Islam and is the indigenous management system for the Middle East. And so when that indigenous management system collapsed, what occurred was a tragedy of the commons where anybody could graze anything at any time. So you had massive denudation of the land through improperly managed grazing. The second part of it was primarily through tree cutting, where a lot of the Bedou historically have cut trees as a way to get cash. They sell it for firewood in Mecca or in Taif or whatever the nearest city may be. And then that gives them cash so they can buy imported feed for their animals because they can't sustain their animals on the land anymore. So it's a double whammy where poverty and ecological degradation are reinforcing each other in this really vicious cycle. And that's the context for what's going on. And that same cycle of poverty and ecological degradation is something you can observe all over the planet in rural communities on every continent. It's a pattern that I became aware of in El Bela, and then everywhere I look, you see this.
It, it's everywhere. And so what was the approach that you were taking on that pilot land? What happened? And what were those lessons learned along the way? So because we had mountains, we had flash floods. And we had some anecdotes of wells going dry in areas nearby as people would try to grow barley or they'd try to grow citrus. And then their water would get really salty and then they couldn't grow it anymore. So we knew we didn't want to rely on groundwater. And what that left was flash floods. So we first developed a water system that would slow down water in the mountains and allow it to percolate into the ground rather than running off and running into the Red Sea. Uh, the larger floods in our area, about 90% of that fresh water runs into the Red Sea. Or in some places, they have built these really large dams where they can catch a significant amount of that water and then they make it available for agriculture. So we wanted a passive, low-tech system that the people could build on their own that would take the water from these flash floods and get it into the ground. And then that would give us a water budget. And then our goal was to put more water into the ground than we were taking out so that we knew we were restoring shallow aquifers while using that same flash flood water that we caught to restore a, a silvopasture system, which is a tree-based grazing system. And the idea is that we could get fodder trees and a few productive trees that would provide feed in the summers, which is during the dry season, and at the same time provide some resilience by expanding the product offering off of these landscapes. So at the beginning, we knew that the folks we were working with are absolute experts in animal husbandry, particularly with camels and goats and sheep. It's a huge part of their identity. So whatever system we came up with, it had to fit local culture while fitting local ecology, while restoring ecological function by integrating those two different things. That was the objective. And so we iterated on the water system and came up with something that worked really well. We trialed over a dozen tree species that we thought would have an ecological component, as well as having a, a potential product coming off of it. And then we mixed with the configuration of these different pieces on a 100-acre prototype. And we would have kept going, but we had six years where we had a very nice budget that allowed us to do all the experiments we wanted to do and to hire a lot of men. Eventually, we had 120 men working with us, all of whom were getting a decent monthly salary. And so we were creating jobs and teaching the people these systems and at the same time figuring out what really worked and what really didn't. Speaking of the budget, who were some of the funders for this project and, and, or important partners that you had in, in sort of keeping the project going along the way? Yeah, the person behind this project was a Saudi princess. It's uh, Her Royal Highness Haifa al Faisal, who is the youngest daughter of the late King Faisal. She had visited El Beda with her sister in law, who is uh, Her Highness Nuf bint Fahad. And they had seen the poverty and seen the conditions that people were living in and decided they wanted to do something about it. So she was the founder and the original patron for all of El Beda. She paid for the bulk of it out of pocket. And then she and Princess Nuf did fundraising on an annual basis where they would go to different people within their network to fund it. So I don't know all the people who participated in contributions to El Beda, but the person, or rather the people who organized it and were, were the first ones to get it going were Princess Hefal Faisal and, and Nuf bint Fahad. 
Not every day you have a project backed by a Saudi princess. <laughs> true. It's true. Yeah. And it, it was an interesting life for me because I'd go between, you know, reports to one of the most respected families in the country who, who is the daughter of a king. And then I would go out and spend the rest of my time with these Bedou who lived on dates and camel's milk. And it was a bit surreal at times. Yeah, that's quite the contrast to have alums of the same phase. We wanted to also talk a little bit about your work around mangroves. And so for, for context, you're involved in a variety of projects in Latin America, Africa, and the U.S., but we'd love to specifically dig into the mangroves project that you've been working yeah. on in Baja, California. For our listeners, this is a project where you're actually enabling mangroves deforestation, so the cultivation of mangroves in sort of areas that are otherwise degraded. Could you tell That's us a little right. bit about what the vision of that is, obviously the challenges in that, and, and what do you really need to make those projects successful? Yeah, this was, so this is a system that is the, the first developed by a scientist named Carl Hodges. Carl was quite a famous scientist in his time. There, I mean, Vogue did a character piece on him. And he, if you search for his name, you'll find old news articles about him and the work he was doing. And Carl came up with this seawater system where he said, look, we can't grow enough food with the fresh water we've got if we're looking at population growth and, and water usage. And he said, but oceans cover 70% of our planet. And there have to be crops that we can grow with ocean water. So I think starting in the 1960s, he was sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation to do a catalog of plants that grow in seawater and then to start to develop and to identify which of those could actually have cropping potential. And that led to the development of what was called integrated seawater aquaculture. They were calling it integrated seawater aquaculture systems through the 2000s. And they had a project in Eritrea It started in 1999 and went through 2004. It was actually too successful for their own good because the Eritrean army showed up one day, told them they had 24 hours to leave and forced them to burn their records at gunpoint. Because the Eritrean army viewed this project they had developed as an easy cash cow, right? Where they'd have an easy source of cash by seizing this system. And of course, six months after they were out, it stopped functioning. And the person who designed that with Carl and who managed that system in Eritrea is my co-founder named Ned Doherty. And one of the project managers of that was Howard Weiss, who is one of my other co-founders. So when I was at Stanford, I was looking for land in Mexico to do some dryland agroforestry and someone from the Tomcat Center connected me to Ned and Howard and said, hey, these guys are also looking at sites in Mexico. Maybe you should have a phone call. So I got on the phone with Ned, flew down to his office in San Diego to meet him. And within half an hour of meeting, we knew we were going into business together. It was really like love at first sight because we saw in each other the missing piece we'd been looking for a lot of things. I'd always been up in the desert watershed doing flood management and, and forestry, and they had been on the coast doing seawater systems. And both of us had always thought, you know, there's got to be something you can do in, in that other part of the watershed that I don't know about. So we were really the missing piece of the puzzle for each other. So what is this system? We've stopped calling it integrated seawater agriculture systems because the acronym is ISIS, 
So now we're calling it Regenerative Seawater Agroforestry, or RSA. And what we're doing is we're taking aquacultures and using the effluent off of that aquaculture, rather than dumping it into the ocean, we're circulating it through a number of systems that absorb the nutrient, absorb that effluent off of the aquacultures. And that's where the fertility to grow these agroforestry systems come from. So we're doing um, halophytic crops with mangrove intercrop. We're doing mangrove woodland where we're coppicing mangroves and using that to harvest leaf and wood material. And then we're doing constructed mangrove wetlands. And off of those systems, we are developing an aquaculture feed so that the aquaculture grows the forest. The forest provides the feed for the aquaculture. That's where the circular system comes in. But there's about a dozen other products that come off of this. So we're taking really saline, degraded coastal landscapes that produce nothing. On the sites I've visited in Mexico, we never saw any life there except for a coyote that was walking through. Or, you know, there are a few birds that we saw flying overhead, but there's nothing actually in the soil, right? There, there's no plants growing most of the time. And we're taking that landscape and converting it into mangrove forests and agroforestries that has massive benefits for carbon sequestration, for fresh water, for biodiversity, but it's also creating economies in places where people don't have really great economic function. Neil, what you're describing sounds amazing. And, you know, I've done a little bit of research on mangroves for in my master's thesis and just remember from that work that mangroves are really difficult. It's really challenging to get them to actually grow successfully, particularly in places where they haven't grown before. So mm -hmm. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, how are you addressing that challenge or what gives you the confidence that this will be successful in this super saline place that hasn't fostered life before. So the salt management is one of the tricky parts. That's where we have some proprietary processes in place. But for me, it's the fact that my team's already done it. And as far as I know, they're the only team on earth that's ever done it before. It's a question of design, right? Understanding how to design which is what Ned does, and then making sure that we're selecting sites that are appropriate. So we don't want caliche soils that are almost like cement. We don't want to do it on top of a bunch of coral stone or anything like that. But for me, it's my team's already done this before. And so when, when I came on, when I first joined up, before we had incorporated and we were figuring out what to do, a lot of what I did was I looked at their financial models, I looked at their product streams, and, and was looking for ways to tweak the system to make it more viable as a commercial venture. Initially, when they were doing this, they were looking at biofuels as one of their main crops. To be profitable on the model they had before, they needed 10,000 hectares to do it before they hit enough economies of scale. And now we're down to 500 hectares to be profitable. 
And so on the ecological side of things, I'm confident because we've done it. On the financial side of things, making it viable as an enterprise, we've changed the model significantly and the product offering quite significantly. And that I think that is what makes it sustainable now. Before, it was massive, massive amounts of land that were needed to break even. And now we can do it on a much smaller basis. And I think the timing's a lot better now. But that's, that's kind of glib to just say, well, we already did it. But at the same time, we're iterating. We're not pioneering at this point. It's helpful to, to hear your thoughts on that and definitely thinking carefully about, you know, the right regeneration in the right place. It's something that you hear with tree planting, right? It's right tree, right place. And since you've done this regeneration in, in very challenging context or working in challenging context, are there places where regeneration or afforestation just won't work? And what can go wrong with these projects? Oh, man, it's so easy to do it wrong. Uh, who, my friend in East Africa named Natalie Topa, who you guys should have on, by the way, she is amazing. She was telling me that they had just announced that on Mount Kilimanjaro, they were going to do a 25,000 tree pine plantation. And we were mourning together how poorly thought out that concept is. Um, yeah, it's easy to do it wrong um, because you have to have a system that's tailored to local ecologies, but also to local cultures, and that needs to have a strong economic component. Because if you're just planting trees and you're ignoring the local cultural and economic situation, if you've got poverty adjacent to conservation, that conservation is going to collapse. Because the people who, who are living in poverty see the resources in that conservation area as a way to make ends meet. And so unless there is an economic component, oftentimes these tree planting systems are just going to be cut down in the future. So for us, it's about tying rural wealth to ecological function so that the incentives are aligned for people to steward their landscapes rather than to degrade them to make ends meet. And that, and that gets very tricky. It involves a lot of work with people, which also is, I mean, people are a lot trickier to work with than trees. So there has to be a lot of trust developed. There has to be a lot of understanding. There has to be a lot of locally led initiative in order for this to be done. There is a lot of higher up push for tree planting that doesn't function when it comes to what's on the ground. It's people in power thinking that this stuff is just really simple, so we're just going to pay people to plant trees. Without a, a very good understanding of local context, it, it's your chances of failure are very high. Couldn't agree more. You mentioned briefly your business model and, and some of the questions or challenges on, on that side of the story. I wonder if you could share the, like, the 30 seconds. What, what is the actual business model around this kind of work in you know, obviously there's a lot of movement in the, the carbon markets. Is that part of the story? How, how does the, the business model side come together? So we've got four main sources of revenue that we're developing, one of which is carbon. 
One of which is sale of goods off of our system. That's probably the main one and the easiest to understand. Where in 18 months, we should have the world's first regenerative shrimp on the market in the U.S. Um, where the process of producing this shrimp grows forests. All right. Which means we have a system that is legitimately virtuous consumption. Right. The more you eat, the better it is for the planet. Um uh, the other things we're selling off of this system are we'll have oysters, likely crab or lobster, micro and macro algaes that can be further processed into other goods, mushrooms, biofuel, animal fodder, aquaculture feed. Um, so in some cases, we're, we're developing our own projects. We're, we're installing these systems and then we're selling the goods. With some of the components within that are very carbon sequestering. The mangrove coppice in particular, the mangrove wetland as well. But we have to essentially redo the science. Because we've tweaked the system so much from what it was, we essentially need to redo the science and remeasure what is the rate going to be on a particular soil type at a particular scale with the particular species we're working with. And I expect it's going to be different results for, for different countries we're operating in. So that's one example. Another example is we can take this system and retrofit existing aquaculture facilities. And most shrimp, most aquaculture, we're focused on shrimp right now, but we're not limited to it. Most aquaculture facilities just dump their effluent into the ocean. And sometimes they're paying a fee for that because they're essentially permitted polluters. Other times they're not. But we can retrofit existing aquacultures with this system as a way to increase their productivity, as a way to increase their product offering, and actually reduce their expenses. Because in most aquaculture systems, feed is 50% of the operating cost. And we can grow their feed on site. So that's kind of a B2B offering that we can do. Um, but then the, uh, the other things that come into play aside from goods sold is carbon crediting, um, is the real estate piece is really intriguing, not necessarily as a source of revenues, but as a source of value creation. Um, we're taking some of the worst land on the planet that other people don't see value in. And in some very fundamental way, what we're doing is we're taking undervalued assets and revealing the value that they have. We have to prove it. But I think we can 40x the value of the real estate within a decade on some of these landscapes. And the, the last piece is that through taking places that really aren't that attractive and making them green and flowing with water, there is the chance to do ecotourism or just tourism in general. So that's a broad overview of the business model and how we expect to play with these different things in different configurations on different kinds of landscapes. If you had a magic wand, what would you do to change or accelerate the deployment of natural climate solutions today? The biggest problem here is that you've got people like me who are on the ground 
We know how to run projects. We know how to design this stuff. We know how to work with the people. Um, but we all suck at finance, right? Because none of, none of us come from a finance background. And, and on the other hand, you've got investors who are interested, right? They, they, they understand the concept. They understand, you know, the need for solutions like this. Um, but, and they're looking for projects to fund. And we don't speak each other's language. Uh, we don't know how to talk to each other in a way that, that what we're used to doing makes sense for the other group. Um, and I think, I, I think that's a massive barrier, right? How do you monetize a 1,000% increase in biodiversity? I don't know the answer to that question. And everybody understands that biodiversity is, is a huge issue, right? Everybody understands that, that, that this is something we need to deal with. But when I come up with a project that's a viable enterprise, and I'm talking about biodiversity as one of the main things, that doesn't play into the IRR. Right, that doesn't play into the financial model. It's it's an externality where people understand that it needs to happen, but they're not used to evaluating projects that use this as as a as a main selling point, right? Um, so there, that's where I perceive there's a massive barrier is that the current financial models we have for investing don't know how to deal with externalities. Right, especially positive externalities, um, and people like me, you know, I, I didn't even know what finance meant when I was in Saudi. I had no clue, right? A totally foreign world, and I had to go to Stanford for a year, you know, to one of the best business schools on the planet, to try to incubate this and figure out, you know, a decent way to go about it. Um, and even today, I'm not a finance expert, not in any sense of the word, but I at least know some of the basics so that I can have a conversation and not be totally clueless. Um, so th if I were to wave a magic wand, it would be that there is a way to communicate these values and integrate them into financial models such that the real value was somehow represented. Um and and that that there was a, a bridge created so that the people from the finance world looking for projects would know what they were looking for and 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 that it would somehow that their models would be different and that the people from my world would actually understand the world of finance and know how to communicate what we're doing because because I think that's a, a significant barrier right now. Amazing. Couldn't agree more. And Neil, how can listeners find out more about your work? Um, so my email is neilspackman at regenerativeresources.co. I've got about 150 hours worth of webinars on YouTube under the name Sustainable Design Masterclass. And then our website is regenerativeresources.co where there's a, a pretty good model of that seawater system. So to close out, Neil, we wanted to have a little lightning round. So this sort of rapid fire round of questions. So let's get started. So first of all, what is your favorite carbon sink? Mangroves. 
That's great. Uh, I think some among us would agree. <laughs> What's your favorite book that you've read in the last year? N.K. Jemison's series. It's a uh, fantasy fiction. All right. Well, escapism. We'll have to check that out. Yep. And although we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with COVID, what's been your favorite COVID quarantine activity? Oh, goodness. Um, chess. Great. Great. I've played a lot of chess online <laughs> <laughs> during, during COVID. Very, very quarantine friendly. Yeah. And, and what keeps you up at night? Oh, goodness. Thinking through this stuff. I'm pretty much living regen egg systems all the time. I go to sleep thinking about it and I wake up thinking about it, particularly as it relates to our business, right? Because we're still, we're still in a startup phase and we're pretty unique. And so I feel like all this startup stuff that I'm dealing with, it's not the stuff that I'm really good at. Right. The stuff I'm really good at is once the projects are, are up and funded. And so I'm learning a huge amount. And so it's just a lot of grappling with challenges that we face and signing board members and getting advisors on and meeting with politicians who don't want us to work with mangroves and developing JVs. There's so much going on. It's so typical for people in a startup to be like, oh, I'm working 12 hour days, six days a week and... I'm not glorying in that piece of it. I'm just in the middle of it. It's the typical emotional roller coaster combined with you know, the typical challenge of trying to get a business going. And for us trying to get a business going, that's actually solving massive environmental and, and human solutions or problems rather. So I'm, in the middle of a startup and that takes up all my time and all my thought except for my wife and kids and that's about it that that makes a lot of sense you're communicating a challenge that is hard to articulate you're dealing with really diverse stakeholders and and geography so now i that's I, it. I believe that to end on a positive note what are you looking forward to in 2021 we're going to grow 3 million mangroves this year so by the end of the year, we should have a regional office in the Middle East and hopefully one in either West or East Africa. I, I'm looking forward to getting these projects financed and breaking ground and actually doing the work that I love to do instead of all the startup stuff. I'm looking forward to being able to tell this story, not as a, this is what we're going to do, but this is what we're doing today. That's what gets me out of bed and, and gets me going is we are going to grow hundreds of thousands of acres of forest in the next decade. And I'm so excited to do it. That's really amazing. And it's, it sounds like you are very much on the brink of getting there. So we are are really excited to see where you go with this business and would love to, to visit these mangroves for us at some, at some point as well. Neil, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been terrific. Thanks, Ida. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Julia, Thank too. You. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com, to see this episode's show notes, 
explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.